Genesis 37. A little cold in here tonight. I thought I'd wear my jacket. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you, Lord, how that you are in control, that you're a sovereign God, that nothing happens that surprises you. You love us, Lord. And you are working all things together for good in our lives. And we love you and we thank you for it. And tonight as we study the story of Joseph, we pray, Lord, that you'll encourage our faith. That you'll help us to hold on a little longer. Knowing that you have a happy ending to the story that we're living. Work in our hearts tonight, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight I thought I would wear my high school letter jacket. And check it out. After 23 years, I can still get that button button right there. Maybe not the other one, but that one. It still fits, sort of, after 23 years. And I'm telling you, man, when I was 18 years old, I loved walking around in this letter jacket. Actually, I loved strutting around in this letter jacket. Because, you know, you don't walk around in a letter jacket. You strut around in a letter jacket. Because a letter jacket has all these little icons all over it that symbolize your talents and your triumphs. In fact, a letter jacket can be a coat of conceit. Hey, Joseph also liked to strut around in his letter jacket. As a matter of fact, it made his ten brothers jealous. Look in chapter 37, verses 3 and 4. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Just like a letter jacket, Joseph's coat of many colors spoke of privilege and favor. One translation reads, a long sleeve coat, which was a landowner's attire. Common workers wore short sleeves. Joseph wore long sleeves. The impression that was left upon his brothers was that Joseph was a white-collar dude. They were simply blue-collar. Every time Adam and Hoss saw little Joe strutting around the Ponderosa in his letter jacket, their hatred grew. Bitterness was brewing, boiling, ready to explode. And Joseph didn't help matters much. You can read in verse 2 that he was a tattletale. In verses 5 through 11, he infuriates his brothers with his dreams. Verse 5 tells us, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Joseph has yet to learn that one of the keys to a happy family life is leaving a few things unsaid each day. In his first dream, the brothers are in the field harvesting wheat. Each boy has a bundle, and the brothers' Wheaties end up bowing down to Joseph's Wheaties. They got the point of what it meant. Verse 8 records their response. Shall you indeed have dominion over us 
So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Even though it was true, the brothers weren't quite ready to receive the fact that their bratty little daddy's pet brother would one day rule over them and be their boss. The second dream had the same impact. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to Joseph. This enrages even Joseph's dead Jacob. Verse 10 says, His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Verse 11 sums up their reactions. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This jealousy sets up the first movement in Joseph's journey, the pit. And for 14 chapters, we are going to follow Joseph from pit to Potiphar's to prison and finally to the palace. Joseph is really a showcase for another P as well, and that's providence. God is sovereign over all situations, all circumstances. And he moves behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. The life of Joseph illustrates the truth. Our appointments, our disappointments, are oftentimes God's appointments. In verses 13 and 14, Joseph is sent from his tent in Hebron to check out his brothers who are tending sheep in Shechem. He finally catches up with them in the city of Dothan. Which brings up two more P's in Joseph's journey. Picture and prophecy. Joseph is an amazing portrait of Jesus Christ. You know, God God often speaks of New Testament realities through Old Testament types and analogies. It's been said, typology is a species of prophecy. You may have heard it put this way. What's concealed in the old is revealed in the new. And what's revealed in the new is concealed in the old. And that's true. And Joseph is an excellent example. Notice here, Hebron means communion, which is exactly what Joseph is enjoying. Communion with his father Jacob, that is, until he is sent to Shechem. And throughout the Bible, Shechem becomes synonymous with sin and sorrow. Now, apply this to Jesus Christ. The gospel story begins with the Father and Son in heaven communing with each other until the Son is sent into a world of sin and sorrow. Jesus, like Joseph, is on a mission to check out his brothers, the Jewish people. But just like the brothers did to Joseph, the Jews will also conspire to kill Jesus. We're told in verses 19 through 21, Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beasts have devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. But while Reuben is away, the brothers put little Joe out of the pit, and they sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver to a band of Midianite slave traders that are headed for Egypt. Of course, there's one problem. What are they going to tell the old man? And so they concoct a story. They tear up his letter jacket and they dip it in goat's blood. 
And then they tell Jacob how Joseph was attacked and killed by wild animals. And it works. Joseph believes the lie. And he really mourns for, Jacob believes the lie, and he really mourns for Joseph for the next 20 years, really. Isn't it ironic? Call it poetic justice. Jacob gets tricked by the same means he used to trick his father, Isaac. You remember? Jacob also killed a goat, put the wool on his arms to appear hairy like Esau. Here the brothers kill a goat and they dip Joseph's coat in its blood. In other words, the chickens come home to roost. As so often the case, a man's sin comes back to bite him. Chapter 37, verse 36, sets up the next movement of the story. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Joseph goes from the pit to Potiphar's, but in between there is a bizarre side story. Chapter 38 records the sordid story which highlights Jacob's son Judah and his disregard for a custom that's no longer applicable to us, the law of the Liverite. Levir was the Hebrew term for brother-in-law. And in ancient times, when a man died without an heir, it was the responsibility of the man's brother to marry his widow and raise up an heir to take over his brother's inheritance and household. Well, Judah had three sons. So when his oldest son, Ur, dies... The second brother, Onan, is expected to fulfill his obligation to Ur's widow, Tamar. Verse 9 tells us, though, how sinister and selfishly Onan treated Tamar. Apparently, he used Tamar sexually. And then rather than impregnating her, he spilled his seed out on the ground. The whole episode angered God. And it certainly upset Tamar. Judah tells her that he has a third son, but he's not yet marriageable age. But when the third son grows up, he will give him to Tamar to marry and fulfill the family's obligation. But when the youngest son grows up, Judah fails to fulfill his promise. And this is when Tamar shows that she can be as sinister as Judah's son's. She poses as a prostitute, and she lulls Judah into her tent. And she gets pregnant not by the sons of Judah, but by Judah himself. Now you have to ask, why did God insert such a sordid story into the middle of a beautiful account of his overarching providence in the life of Joseph? But notice how the whole mess starts in chapter 38, verse 2. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went in to her. He married a Canaanite. That's how all the problems got started. We're going to discover that the reason God forces the Hebrews to Egypt is their inability to resist marriage to Canaanites. Chapter 38 never happens if Judah doesn't marry an unbeliever. You see, when we get to Egypt, we're going to find that there was a strict caste system that prohibited Egyptians from interacting with foreigners. 
God's going to use Egyptian custom to prohibit his people from compromising their integrity and their purity by becoming unequally yoked with unbelievers, even if they were willing, the Egyptians would have nothing to do with it. And so to prepare the way, he sends Joseph on ahead to Egypt. This is all very important to us. It's been said, marry an unbeliever and you get the devil as a father-in-law. Be careful. Judah sinned by marrying an unbeliever, and it set out a whole chain of problems. Singles, don't you repeat the mistake. Don't marry an unbeliever. The Midianite traders sold Joseph to a diplomat in Egypt named Potiphar. And Joseph quickly proved himself a dependable servant. In addition, God blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. I hope your company's being blessed because of your faithfulness to God on the job. Potiphar kept promoting Joseph until he became his business manager, his chief aide. In verse 6, we're told, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Boy, he trusted him explicitly. But a problem develops. Verse 6 and 7 says that Joseph was a hunk. He was a handsome guy. And Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. Mrs. Potiphar makes a pass at Joseph. She propositions him with sex. In verse 1, we're told that Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And I have a theory. This is not biblical This is from Isaiah, Isaiah. (laughs) Understand it was common for Oriental kings to employ eunuchs in the highest cabinet positions. This ensured the safety of their royal harem. And it's possible that Potiphar sold his virility for a higher position in Pharaoh's court. In other words, he put his career ahead of his wife. Guys, that is still a bad mistake to make. Put your family first. It's possible that Potiphar made that mistake. And he leaves his wife with a legitimate need. She, though, tries to meet it in an illegitimate manner. There's now a young man in her house. It looks a little like Tom Cruise. And she begins to rationalize. And she begins to justify an adulterous liaison, but not Joseph. No rationalizations on his part. Verses 8 and 9 records Joseph's response. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Guys, today we live in a world full of rationalizations. Listen to how we've redefined our terms. It's no longer adultery. It's now called an affair. Marriages are open. Divorces are creative. 
Adulterers are now significant others. J. Allen Peterson describes how we've glamorized adultery. He writes, affair? What a nice sounding, almost inviting word. Wrapped in mystery, fascination, and excitement. A relationship, not sin. One psychologist has coined a term. He calls it healthy adultery. Hey, there are a million hurting and bleeding hearts that will testify to the fact that there's nothing healthy about adultery. Listen to a victim of adultery in her letter to Ann Landers. She writes, My husband and I have been married for 30 years. I was a virgin bride and have been a faithful wife. A young woman, our daughter's age, came on to him and he took her to bed. He was so guilt-ridden and miserable that he told me about it the next day. I forgave him, did not mention it to a soul, and he never saw her again. He believes no harm was done. She thinks no harm was done, but she destroyed me. I'm unable to grow old gracefully. I cry for hours when I'm alone. This woman's heartbreak is tragic. But adultery is not only a sin against a spouse. Notice what Joseph says. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's also a sin against God. Guys, the marital vows are not just vows to one another. They are vows to God. Sex carries heavy spiritual overtones. Sex and marriage has been created to speak of God's relationship with His church, and therefore it becomes sacred and holy. Sexual sin is a sin not only against man, but against God. Rather than discourage Mrs. Potiphar, Joseph's refusal only turns her own, and she becomes persistent. He is a mountain she wants to climb. Joseph is a challenge. And we're told in verse 10, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Day after day after day, she propositioned him. And yet Joseph refused. To me, this is impressive. Joseph was a normal young man. Joseph had hormones. Joseph was tempted. There was times when he was tired. His defenses were down. He was vulnerable. And yet Joseph continually resisted her advances. I am afraid that many believers are virtuous only because of lack of opportunity. If they were ever baited day in and day out like Joseph, it wouldn't take them long to cave in and to capitulate. Guys, godly convictions, personal integrity, Moral purity were priorities for Joseph, and they need to be priorities for you and for me. Let me make one more point. Don't believe the lie that everybody else is doing it. That's not true. Everybody else is not doing it. Joseph didn't do it. And there are still Josephs today who aren't doing it. As a matter of fact, why don't you be a Joseph? Finally, Mrs. Potiphar sets a trap. She gave her servants the afternoon off. So when Joseph walked into the house, he and her would be alone. 
She was probably naked when she grabbed his coat, tried to tear off his clothes, and Joseph just ran, bolted. Hey, sometimes temptation becomes so fierce that the only option is to flee, bolt, head for the hills, man, get out of Dodge. Leave the premises. Remove yourself logistically from the source of the temptation. Hey, this is what Paul tells Timothy. 2 Timothy 2 verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts. Hey, there are times if you have to just get out of the place, do it. Nothing is worth worth compromising your integrity and your sexual purity. Of course, as it's often said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Mrs. Potiphar becomes a woman scorned. And she becomes vindictive and she holds on to the coat as proof that Joseph has tried to rape her, so she says. When Potiphar hears her accusations, we're told in verse 19, his anger was aroused. But I don't believe it was aroused at Joseph. If he had really believed the charge, trust me, he would have taken this slave out and had him tortured and executed. The prison sentence that he gives him is proof that he suspected his wife was lying and he was trying to save face while being merciful to Joseph. Potiphar, though, was not the only person being merciful to Joseph. Verse 21 tells us, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Understand, everywhere Joseph goes, God blesses. It doesn't take long for him here to... Prove himself so faithful that the warden turns over the prison operations to Joseph. While in prison, Joseph meets two men, a butler and a baker. The butler was the king's cupbearer. He tasted the king's wine to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. He was a wine taster. The two men had served as the Pharaoh's personal attache. Somehow they had blown it. They had offended the Pharaoh. And the king had tossed them into prison. Perhaps the baker burned the bagels one morning. We don't know. Maybe the butler spilt wine all down the Pharaoh's shirt. But it was no accident that both these guys show up in prison on Joseph's watch. There's no accident that anything happened to Joseph that happened to Joseph. Though Joseph didn't recognize it at the time, God's hand was already at work in his circumstances. While in prison, both the butler and the baker have a dream that they can't interpret. And Joseph tells them, do not interpretations belong to God? That's important for us to remember. God can speak to us through dreams and the proper interpretation of those dreams. I heard someone say one time, and I think it's true, all dreams have one of three sources, either God or Satan or the pizza from the night before. (laughs) And you have to sort out from which source they're coming. But don't discount every dream. Sometimes you may dream a dream that God gives you, and he gives you the interpretation as well. Joseph interprets the butler's dream. In three days, he'll be restored to his former position. Then he interprets the baker's dream. In three days, he'll be hung. Now, it's not recorded. 
Again, from the book of Isaiah. But I know the baker's reaction. Can I get a second opinion? But it was true. Three days later, the butler got ahead and the baker lost his head. Just as Joseph said. But the tragedy comes in chapter 40, verse 23. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph thought that he'd finally had someone in power that had connections. That surely once the butler got out of prison, he'd pull Joseph up with him, especially after interpreting his dream for him. But it didn't take long before Joseph's hopes were dashed. Think of all the opportunities Joseph had to get discouraged. His brothers shafted him, literally. They threw him down the pit. He was treated unfairly at Potiphar's house. He was lied about by Potiphar's wife and lied to by the butler. I'm sure he felt that his life was a wash. That he was going nowhere and getting there fast. But all the while, God was at work. Positioning him perfectly for a very special and important purpose. William Cowper once put it, Behind a frowning providence, there shines a smiling face. Joseph didn't see God in his life, but God was there nonetheless. And God is at work in your life. Even as we speak, putting together circumstances and situations in order to accomplish his purposes. I like what the Jewish rabbis say. Coincidence is not a kosher word. (laughs) It was two years later when the Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when seven fat cows rose out of the river. Afterwards, he saw seven emaciated, skinny cows rise out of the river. And the skinny cows ate the fat cows, and it all caused Pharaoh to have a cow. (laughs) And he woke up from his sleep. But he went back to bed, and he dreamed a second dream. This time he saw seven plump heads of grain, along with seven blighted heads of grain. And then the blighted ate the plump. And all this dreaming troubled Pharaoh. So that the next morning, He called in his stable of soothsayers and magician and Gene Dixon types to interpret the dreams. But they all struck out. And then God took his elbow and jabbed the memory of the butler. Remember Joseph? Yeah, hey, what about Joseph? And I love the dialogue between Joseph and the king. In verse 41, verse, chapter 41, verse 15, the Pharaoh asks him, I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. And so Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Don't you love how he gives God the glory? This is not the same haughty kid who wore his letter jacket around in front of his brothers. God has humbled Joseph. In verses 25 through 32, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. They both convey the same message. Seven years of plenty will be followed by seven years of famine. But the seven years of famine will be so severe, much more severe than the years of plenty, 
will be bountiful. Then Joseph offers the Pharaoh a suggestion. How about some nationwide rationing? Appoint a man to collect a surplus during the prosperous years that will last through the years of famine. And guess who the Pharaoh chooses for the job? How about Joseph? Verse 37 tells us, So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Isn't that beautiful? The Pharaoh could tell that there was something supernatural about this man, Joseph. And he wanted him on his team. I think it's very interesting whenever an unbeliever recognizes something supernatural about our lives. That should be the case all the time. The world should be able to look at us and note within us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It should be obvious to the people we work with, to the people that are around us. I love what Donald G. says about the filling of the Holy Spirit. He says, when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know it. And need no one to acquaint you with the fact, you will soon be acquainting them. (laughs) It'll be obvious. People will recognize it. Pharaoh appoints Joseph second in command in all Egypt. Gives him the royal seal, full authority. Pharaoh outlines the scope of his power in verse 44. Without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Guys, overnight, Joseph now goes from the pit to the pinnacle. Incredible. He came to Egypt with an iron chain around his neck. Now his neck is adorned with a gold chain. It was an amazing turnaround. If they were giving out the award, Joseph would have won Comeback Player of the Year. Several times, probably. Hey, Joseph was around 17 years old when he arrived in Egypt. And he may have spent 10 years in the prison. That's a long time. That's a tough road. I'm sure that there were many ways that God could have gotten Joseph from Canaan to that position there in Egypt. But by doing it this way, God not only made a way, but he made a man in the process. And God is not just concerned about our positioning as much as he is our character and our integrity and making a man or a woman of God. The circumstances that Joseph went through caused him to understand that God's privileges don't justify a pompous attitude. Promotion is from God. It's a result of His grace, not our greatness. While in the pit, God has a way of making His point. Again, through it all, Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. In verse 46, we're told that all this happened to Joseph... When he was 30 years old, isn't that interesting? About the same age Jesus was when he began his earthly ministry. Like Joseph, Jesus rose from the grave or the pit and was exalted to the right hand of the king in heaven. Likewise, as Joseph forgave his brothers, Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. Joseph pinned his hopes of being remembered on two men, a baker And a butler or a wine taster. Jesus commanded us to remember him 
with the ordinance of communion, which includes the bread or baker and the wine or butler. As with Jesus, Philippians 2 verse 10 teaches us that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And notice in verse 43 what they shout when Joseph rides by on his chariot. Bow the knee. In verse 45, Joseph receives an Egyptian name. Zophnath Pania. Which means Savior of the world. I can think of no better name for Jesus. And amazing, in verse 50, after his promotion, Joseph is given a Gentile bride, Azanoth, in perfect parallel with Jesus. For after his exaltation, he also receives a Gentile bride, his church. The rest of Joseph's story is given to how he treats his brothers when they're reunited. And it too forms a picture of how Jesus will treat Israel, his brothers, in the last days when they are united. In chapter 42, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt for grain, and here the plot thickens. When Joseph's brothers arrive, he recognizes them, but not vice versa. By now, little Joe is nearly 40 years old. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He speaks the Egyptian language. Besides, the last time the brothers saw him, his letter jacket fit. Now he's gained a little weight, you know, around the midsection. Never in their wildest dreams did they expect to ever see Joseph again. Verse 7 tells us, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. He started grilling them with questions. Accused them of being spies. Over the next few interactions with them, he's going to put them through a series of tests to detect if they have really become repentant of their crimes. There are three phases in Joseph's dealings with his brothers. Here he relies on mystery. Later he'll reveal his majesty. And finally he will provide them with ministry. At this point, Joseph is relying on mystery. He knows them, but they don't know him. Guys, there are also three phases to how Jesus will deal with Israel in the last days. When Jesus returns at the second coming, he will come in all of his majesty. Afterwards, he will minister to the Jews throughout the kingdom age. But at this moment, he is relying on mystery. The Jews don't recognize him as their brother. In chapter 42, Joseph gives his brothers the grain. And in addition, he even slips the purchase money back into their sacks. And I can't help but to be reminded of God's grace when I think of Joseph's generosity. Sometimes I think I'm making God a sacrifice. But then God turns around and he blesses me with grain and even gives me my money back. My sacrifice is not a sacrifice at all. Jesus gives me back more than I paid. He always does. To make sure his brothers return, not only does he give them the grain and their money back, but he also takes Simeon as hostage. And he agrees to release Simeon if they bring back their younger brother Benjamin. You see, Joseph and Benjamin were the only two sons of Rachel. 
And that means that Benjamin was Joseph's full brother, and he really wanted to see him. It's interesting, too, in verse 21, the brothers interpret Simeon's bondage as the judgment of God for what they did to Joseph. And when they discuss it, they're within earshot of Joseph, and it shakes him up. He weeps when he hears that, yes, they are repentant. Even after two decades, their consciences are still guilty. He is dealing here with repentant brothers. When the brothers report home, Jacob refuses to turn loose of Benjamin. Apparently, Jacob didn't have the same belief in God's promises as did Joseph. In fact, he says in verse 36, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. But these things weren't against him. And perhaps the things you think that are against you, they're not against you at all. These things weren't against Joseph. God was working on his behalf to reunite him with Joseph and to preserve him through the famine. Guys, we need to trust in God's providence. These things aren't against you. God is working on your behalf. You just don't see the conclusion yet. Only a hungry stomach can change Jacob's mind. And when the grain runs out, the brothers return with Benjamin. Jacob has no choice just to let him go. He's got to let him go. This time, Joseph escorts them to his house and invites them to a feast. And there he assures them of his good intentions. He even asks about their father's health. And Joseph is about ready to reveal his identity, but he concocts one more test. One more test to see if they're truly repentant. This time, Joseph's servants put a silver chalice in Benjamin's sack. And when the brothers head north, the Egyptian PD tracked them down, pull them over. And they report that Joseph's chalice has been stolen. And they find it in Benjamin's sack. And they take him prisoner. Joseph tells the ten brothers, hey, you're free to go. He'll just keep the man who stole the chalice. And there was a day, trust me, when these brothers would have taken him up on the offer. All they would have cared about was saving their own skin. But not now. What a dramatic turnaround in their lives. These guys have repented of their selfishness, especially Judah. In chapter 37, he's the one that sold little Joe into slavery. Here in chapter 44, he's the one who pleads to keep little Benjamin out of slavery. He tells them that Joseph, he tells uh, Joseph that his father will die of a heart attack if he loses Benjamin. Understand, there are two prerequisites for the blessings of God. Faith and repentance. Some people say, well, if you just believe. Well, faith is a prerequisite, but faith is preceded by repentance. It's repent and believe for the remission of sins. Are we sorry for what we've done? Or are we just sorry for getting caught? Are we sorry for the damage we've done, for the people we've hurt? Or are we just sorry 
for the consequences that have come to us? Do we simply want to shake off those consequences? Do our time as quickly as we can? Or do we really want to shake up our lives and effect a change inside? Are we willing to surrender our will and do whatever it takes to avoid repeating the same mistakes again? God will bless you. He wants to bless you. But He wants to first see if you have a repentant heart. If you really want to be changed. Let's read what happens next in chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, and here he drops the bombshell. Don't you wish you could have been there? I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come a little closer. Look me in the eyes. And so they came near, and then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. The Hebrew word translated dismayed means to tremble inwardly or to palpitate. Hey, when the sons of Jacob realized that they had been doing business with their long-lost brother, Joseph, they literally started shaking in their boots. And this is how the Jews in the last days are going to react when they realize that the one that they've rejected, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Savior of the world. Their Wheaties will bow down to his Wheaties. And Zechariah 12, verse 10 says that they will grieve just as the brothers do here. Joseph's brothers were so shook up because they feared that Joseph might retaliate. Hey, all of a sudden, it's little Joe who now has the upper hand. And they're a little scared. But that's not Joseph's attitude at all. Look at what he tells them in verse 5. Do not therefore be grieved because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Look at verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph believes in providence. The pit, Potiphar's, the prison. It was all God. All along. What kept Joseph from getting bitter? With all the disappointments he had, there was plenty of opportunity. But I believe it was his belief in divine providence that kept him from developing a sour attitude. Joseph knew that a loving God was in control. And I think it would please God greatly if we left tonight convinced of that truth. The situations that you face are not there by happenstance. God is in control. He loves you. He has a purpose for your life. This reunion ends with a touching scene in verse 14 and 15. Then Joseph fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Wouldn't you have loved to eavesdrop in on that conversation? 
when the brothers make it home and they tell Jacob that his son Joseph is alive and governor of Egypt, they do almost kill him. In verse 26, it says, And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. The old guy's heart skipped a beat. You know, it's sad, really. For 20 years, Jacob lived thinking that his son was dead, while all the while he was alive and well. And what's also sad is the plight of the nation Israel, who for 1950 years, the brothers of Jesus have assumed that Jesus is dead, when in reality, he is alive and doing quite well, and he wants to be united with them. And you know what's sadder still? Is that there are people in your life, people that you love, people that you care about, who think that Jesus is dead, whereas he is alive and he is well. Let them see him in you, in your joy, in the life that you live before them. The grand reunion takes place in chapter 46, verses 29 and 30. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. What a moment. There's an interesting historical footnote in verses 31 through 34. Joseph tells his family that when they go before Pharaoh, they should say that they are shepherds. And then he adds in verse 34, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Scholars believe that at the time, Egypt was actually controlled by foreigners by the Hyksos, or the shepherd kings. And common Egyptians hated shepherds, but these kings, being shepherds themselves, were sympathetic to shepherds, which was another reason God sent them to Egypt. If the Egyptians considered shepherds to be an abomination, that's good. That would have kept the Israelites from marrying unbelievers. Would have kept them pure. They would be hated in Egypt. That was good. It would keep them separate from the pagans. In chapter 48, we have an important event, so much so that the writer of the book of Hebrews includes it in his Old Testament hall of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 21 summarizes Genesis 48. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Isn't that interesting? Now, Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see his father. Jacob is blind as a bat. And so Joseph lines up the two boys according to their birth order. Manasseh, the oldest, in front of his right hand. Ephraim, the youngest, in front of his left hand. But guess what Joseph does? Jacob does. When he goes to bless the boys... He crosses his hands so that he blesses the older before the younger. 
I'm sorry, the younger before the older. Does that ring a bell? You see, one of the peculiarities of all three Hebrew patriarchs is that the custom of the firstborn was violated in their families. Abraham honored Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac blessed Jacob rather than the firstborn Esau. And now Jacob blesses Ephraim, the younger, over Manasseh, the older. It was God's way of saying that his blessing is not awarded according to natural advantage or according to the endowment of man or according to custom or tradition. God's blessing is always awarded according to faith. Do you believe? In chapter 49, Jacob goes on and blesses his 12 sons. And understand what's going on here. Jacob is in the spirit. He is peering into the future. He is prophesying over each son and the succeeding tribe that would come from his loins. And some of the words that are given here are tough pills to swallow. Reuben, we're told, will not excel. There was no judge. There was no general. There was no king to come from the tribe of Reuben. It says here that his incestuous act back in chapter 35, verse 22, is what costs him dearly. Simeon and Levi are divided and scattered due to their cruelty back in chapter 34. In verse 9, Judah is compared to a lion. And it's from this idiom that Messiah gets his nickname. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. Verse 10 records a fascinating prophecy. You'll want to make note of it. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh means he whose right it is. Since the ultimate right to the throne of God's kingdom belongs to the Messiah, the rabbis always took the term Shiloh to be another name for the Savior or the Messiah. This prophecy says that the scepter or the right to self-rule, which was commonly associated with the right to capital punishment, would not pass from the kingdom of Judah until the Messiah had come. This is why the rabbis in Jerusalem wept in 19 AD when the Romans stripped them of their right to capital punishment. You remember this was why later the Sanhedrin had to go to the Romans in order to get permission to execute Jesus. In AD 19, when the edict was issued by the Roman authority, the Jews in Jerusalem were crestfallen. The Babylonian Talmud records their reaction They cried, Woe unto us, for the scepter has been taken from Judah and the Messiah has not appeared. In the minds of the rabbi, Shiloh had not come. Yet the scepter had passed from Judah. In other words, God's prophecy had failed. But what they didn't realize is that Shiloh was working in a carpenter's shop up in the town of Nazareth. He had come. Jesus was alive, working in his father's shop at the time. They just did not recognize him. We're told that Zebulun will become an important port. And look at Issachar in verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey. 
lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. I look at these analogies in Genesis 49 as similar to the names of college football teams. There are some college teams with some really strange nicknames. What are the Utah Utes? What's a Ute? The TCU Horned Frogs. The Maryland Terps. How can you cheer for the Terps? (laughs) The Oglethorpe Stormy Petrels. The San Jose State Banana Slugs. (laughs) Go Slugs! How can you do that? The Presbyterian Blue Hose. The Blue Hose? The Akron Zips. That's not good starting out with Zip. The Youngstown Penguins. But here we have another strange nickname. The Issachar Strong Donkeys. Go Strong Donkeys! The tribe of Issachar was strong. They were endowed with numbers and resources. They had great potential. When Israel enters into the land, when they return, it would have been very easy for Issachar to drive out the Canaanites from their territory. But in the end, Jacob sees that they're going to be a band of slaves. Why? Because the strong donkeys had a problem. They were lazy. Jacob sees them lying by the load rather than lifting up the load. They were napping. Reminds me of the new secretary whose boss told her, Miss Johnson, every time the little bell on your typewriter rings, it doesn't mean it's time for another coffee break. (laughs) Hey, this is a real problem for believers. Laziness. The key to living the Christian life is realizing that you can't do God's part and God won't do your part. As we've learned from the patriarchs of Israel, our part in the covenant is faith. But faith is not passive, it's active. Faith requires effort and diligence. To grow in faith, you have to apply yourself to God's Word. You have to apply the Word to your heart. Renewing the mind requires concentrated effort to replace old ideas with new truth. It takes a little brain drain to rethink your unbiblical assumptions and change the way you approach situations. The Christian life, in essence, takes effort. Hey, lazy believers wind up like the Issachar strong donkeys. A band of slaves. It's been said... Laziness grows on people. It begins in cobwebs and ends in iron chains. If you don't work at shaking off sin, sin will harden around you and encase you and trap you in bondage. Dan, we're told, is a viper. It's the tribe of Dan that gets injected with the venom of idolatry. We'll see that later. Gad is a troop or army. We're told in verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. Or literally, he will dip his foot in oil. And today, 
the Israeli port city of Haifa, is in the borders of Asher. And it's the terminal point for the pipelines that bring oil to Israel. Literally, Asher dips its foot in oil today. Naphtali is wise. Joseph is a fruitful, strong, blessed by God tribe. Benjamin is as vicious, we're told, as a ravenous wolf. Don't let your daughter date Benjamin. Verse 33 tells us, When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Notice the inference there, though, to life after death. His people apparently were still alive, just alive on the other side. Verse 2 tells us, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. And this brings up the embalming process for which the Egyptians are famous, mummification. And just for your information, this is how it works. First, the brains were removed by a crooked hook that was inserted up through the nose. And they just kind of, you know, pulled out the brains. I just thought you'd want to know this. I don't know. (laughs) Second, an incision was cut into the flank. And they could get up in there and remove all the vital organs. Third, the head and the abdominal cavities were stuffed with myrrh and cinnamon and aromatic spices. Fourth, the Bible was soaked 40 days in salt water. And finally, strips of cloth were plastered on the inside and outside with lime. And then they were wrapped around the body, forming a hard, closed encasement. I guess you could say that Jacob was a daddy who became a mummy. Joseph also arranged a state funeral and a military entourage to take him back to the burial site in Canaan. The entourage stopped along the way and mourned for seven days. Notice in verse 3 we're told that they mourned for Jacob a total of 70 days or over two full months. You know, I've always thought that it was cruel for us to mourn two or three days for a loved one And then be expected to go back to work and pick up as if nothing ever happened. That's how we do it. And I think that's cruel. Hey, buddy, life goes on. But hey, God has designed the human heart to hurt. The human heart can be wounded. When it loves, it can be hurt. And God has not designed the human heart to heal in just a matter of two or three days. Yes, life goes on, but we can't until we've had time to turn loose and to let go and to mourn that loss. That's important. Now with Jacob dead, Joseph's brothers get worried. Maybe the only reason he was nice to us was for daddy's sake. Is Joseph about to grow fangs? When Joseph learns that his brothers have questioned his love towards them, it breaks his heart. He weeps. Just because they had turned on him doesn't mean that he will turn on them. Throughout Joseph's ordeal, he never gets bitter, nor does he ever stoop to the level of his tormentors. Joseph always takes the high ground. And it pays off for him well. Listen to Joseph's response in verses 19 and 20. We read them this morning. Do not be afraid, for am I in the pl- 
For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I believe that the key to avoiding bitterness is a strong trust in the providence of God. From the pit, to Potiphar's, to prison, at any point, God could have stepped in and rescued Joseph, but he didn't. God's purpose was not only to position Joseph's career, but it was to perfect Joseph's character. And that's God's intention in your life. God is using your circumstances, not just to position you, but to perfect you. His concern is both where you need to be, but also what you need to be. Don't forget that. Joseph lived 110 years, and he makes the same request as his daddy did. He wants his bones returned to the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we find later in Exodus 13, verse 19, 300 years later, that the Hebrews, when they leave Egypt, they exit with Joseph's bones. Of all Joseph's exploits, it's interesting what gets him mentioned in the Bible's Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11. The one incident that gets him mentioned is his desire for dim bones. Hebrews 11, verse 22 reads, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. What was that? That was his expression of faith. You see, despite his faithfulness to God, the purity of his life, his moral courage, his forgiving spirit, look at all the things that he could have been mentioned, all the things that could have been brought up for special mention, and yet it was none of those things. God mentions his faith, and that should teach us something. Yes, God values our purity. Yes, God values our courage and our devotion, but it's faith alone that makes us right with God. Author John Phillips closes his commentary on the book of Genesis by saying, Thus ends Genesis. It begins with creation and ends with a coffin. That is the Holy Spirit's final comment in the book on the nature and tragedy of human sin. What started out so well now ends with a coffin in Egypt with a box of bones. When the devil said to Eve, thou shalt not surely die. (laughs) It was a venomous lie. The good news is that Exodus follows. Genesis ends with Israel in Egypt. But a glorious deliverance is in the offing. And Exodus will begin God's wonderful plan of redemption. He doesn't leave us in sin and death. He makes a way where we can enjoy life and righteousness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our study through the Bible. Thank you for this wonderful book of Genesis. Bless us this week, Lord, as we meditate on these things. In Jesus' name, amen.